Welcome to episode number 212 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Ryan, and with me today are the huge fans of the World Championship Series of Foosball, or football, or whatever is on today that's yeah. like a big game. Sure. I don't remember. Totally. Uh, Noah, Jill, <laughs> and Michael. I, I'm super into the sports ball, for sure. Yeah, I yes. don't do sport ball. Me either, but my wife tells me it's fun. So when there's when there's any conversation with sports people around, I'm like, go talk to my wife. If you want to talk computers, I'm your guy. Yeah. Uh, we have such an amazing show lined up for today. You guys are absolutely going to love it. You don't want to miss it. The highlight is certainly going to be an interview with Dr. Gerald Pfeiffer, the Chief Technology Officer of SUSE and Chair of the Open SUSE Board. It's brilliant interview. You're not going to want to miss a second of it. And later in the show, we're covering Ubuntu's new fluttering desktop installer. And in the game section, we'll travel to the Viking world of Velheim. We also have tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this coming up right now on Destination Linux. In our community feedback this week, uh, Cyprian says, I'm sorry if I said that wrong, writes us to say, uh, thank you for your great work and another great episode. In response to your latest episode about the Fediverse, I just wanted to share that as of today, January 30th, Google has pulled the Element Messaging app from the Play Store without explanation. I can only speculate what is happening here, but this may send a bad precedence to other decentralized apps. Uh, I would love to hear what your thoughts are regarding this. Uh, kind regards, Cyprian. Uh, so just to be real quick, the it has changed. So that, that did happen. Google did remove uh, Element from the Play Store. However, they also reinstated the app. Uh, essentially what happened was somebody reported them to Google Play and said, hey, there's abusive content in this app. So Google pulls the app. They respond and say, hey, you pulling Matrix or you pulling Element off of the Google Play Store in response to abusive content somewhere on the Matrix Fediverse is kind of like us saying, well, you should probably pull Chrome because there's bad stuff on the internet somewhere. Google, Imagine that doesn't that. make any sense. So they fill out this report <laughs> and they send it in. And the forum says, thank you for disputing your thing. Uh, what we'd recommend is you maybe try a different app, something that doesn't involve abusive content. Give it a different name. Start a fresh brand and try again. So Start a fresh brand and try again. So, they, so they're like, yeah, that's not really going to work either, Google. We we kind of have a brand thing going here with this element. We don't really want to change the name. And that's really kind of an automated message thing. Obviously, no human has actually read our thing. So they poke Google a little bit more and they're like, hey, really? It's it's not abusive content. There's nothing wrong with our app. Seriously, look at it. And then somebody from Google finally looked at it and went, oh, this is so stupid. I'm so sorry. It was a mistake. If this ever happens again, here's how you get in contact with us. And now we're back but uh but yeah it was uh it was it was an interesting weekend yeah this this to me is fascinating because we're we're seeing some of these things take place i was really shocked to see it happen to element frankly i did a whole video series this week on my channel about the importance of decentralized applications like this and one of the things i tried to clarify in there is that decentralized communication matrices like this actually allow for more moderation, not less. It's a big confusion I hear in the public. We know Facebook and these huge centralized 
entities? What are they telling Congress? What are they saying to everybody where these things are taking place, these events and politics and things? They're saying, well, we can't control all of this content. We have hundreds of billions of users, hundreds of billions of posts, hundreds of millions of photos uploaded every single day. And that's why decentralized is a better model. It actually has more option for you to see what you want to see here, what you're interested in, in smaller communities that are moderating. And I feel like Google here was doing an overreach, right? This is the popular thing right now. There's the wipe applications off the map. If there's anybody reports anything to be safe and you can see why being tied to a single infrastructure here like a Google, like a Facebook, like any of these companies is so dangerous because freedom of speech is not perfect, but the alternative is so much worse. And that cannot be more better stated than watching a movie out there that's come out. I was telling Noah to watch it this week called The Dissident, where you see what happens with this centralized technologies and things and what takes place with these technologies and what people are doing with them and why it's important to be caring about privacy, caring about encryption, caring about having all of these companies have all of this information on you. You may be a perfectly good citizen and you just happen to be vocal about something, but if things change here and go the direction they're going, it can be a very, very dangerous road we go down. So we have to be very careful. And I think the matrix platform is the best option we have right now. Small communities moderate. Um, that doesn't mean when you have these decentralized apps, there's no moderation. There's more moderation in my mind, more ability right. to see the stuff that's going on and, and create the communities you want to create um, but without also silencing others. I'd also yeah. say that the moderation is, is more like the, the term moderation implies that it's like, you know, you're, ch you're taking content out and that's not necessarily the case because there are some cases where the server could still have that information, but you don't want to see it because you're not interested in that topic. You can exactly. also like basically moderate the system for yourself. So you can exactly. just choose to see stuff you want to see. You get and to not be an see. adult. Imagine that. Yes, you can become <laughs> an, adult, an adult again. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's annoying because Google has been doing this to a lot of apps lately. They did this to one of my apps I use all the time, which is the uh, Reddit client called Slide. Um, and they, they took them off last July for the same reasons. <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's just complete <laughs> really overreach and shows why we need a true open source solution for phones mm -hmm. in the Linux community that, that could really... Um, take the world by storm. And maybe because of all this nonsense going on, that will give the in for a third party to come in and let's hope that they use WebOS as the yes. starting yes. point. Yes, please, please. <laughs> but we love hearing from our worldwide community and we want you to go get your official DLN mug. It has to be a DLN <laughs> mug. I know you've got these other cute mugs and things, but it's got to be the one Jill just held up there, official DLN <laughs> mug, because this is the only way it works. You got to fill it with some coffee, also known as the spice of life. You got to sit down <laughs> at the nearest stool and send us an email at comments at destinationlinux.org. If you want to join in on the community discussions like this one, then join the DLN community forum by going to dlnforum.com. We pull comments from there as well. It may make it into the show. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you today by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build cloud-native apps. We can build, deploy, scale apps with static websites quickly and easily. Simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository and let their app platform do 
all the heavy lifting. It, lifting. it has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and container images. DigitalOcean runs all of their app platforms on their own infrastructures. Your costs are significantly lower than with other products. I, I have to tell you, when you go out and, ev and, and evaluate what th these virtual private server operators have to offer what you're looking all of them can run servers so if you want to go rent a server there's plenty of places to do that what you're looking for is a company that's going to add value on top of that that's going to take the process that you have to implement over and over and over again every time you have a customer every time you have a client every time you have a use to rent a server and you want to iterate the on that and make that process simpler make it more integrated have it more streamlined have it more features and and that's what DigitalOcean has been doing from the beginning they started with things like a simple api so you could control your droplets spin them up spin them down those kinds of things this continues to evolve and has now come into existence with this app platform, which is literally a creator's dream. They can yep. write their code and all of a sudden it just comes into existence. All they have to do is pay that five bucks a month, but it's actually going to get even better because as a listener of the show, we're going to give you $100 credit that you can use for free. You can go to do.co slash deal. And that, that URL again is do.co slash deal. And it does a couple of things. First of all, it tells DigitalOcean that you are a destination Linux viewer and that you appreciate the work that we do and you appreciate DigitalOcean making what we do here possible. Additionally, it's going to give you a $100 credit so you can get started on DigitalOcean and check out what they have to offer and how it will work for you. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week of Destination Linux. So we are very excited for this interview. We'd like to welcome Dr. Gerald Pfeiffer, the Chief Technology Officer of SUSE and Chair of the OpenSUSE Board on the show today. Dr. Pfeiffer, thank you so much for joining us on Destination Linux today. Hey there, where does it hurt? So I want to get into our first question, but before we get into all of the stuff about SUSE, I want to know about you. So before you became the CTO of SUSE, what was your first experience ever with Linux? How did you first come across Linux? <laughs> so there is a confession actually I need to make. I come from a free PSD background. That's what um that's what we used to do as long as you didn't say windows you're still good that's not a bad profession <laughs> actually i i started programming in windows 2.0 um wow yeah and it was in high school <laughs> that shows my age i guess and the reason i actually started picking up linux and SUSE is we had a deadline we were writing we were writing a paper as uh, so a scientific research paper and we had we had a deadline to submit sunday evening uh, and I wanted to work from home and the software to do that is called tech. It's like, it's not Visivic. It's it's really cool and of a command line to, to write documents with lots of math formulas. Yeah, tech as um, in uh, T-E-X? T-E-X, yeah. Nice. And that didn't run on, um, my my system at home back then was Windows. And that didn't run on Windows, what, what I needed to. And so I had to install something to make it run. And I knew with the internet connection I had at home, um, PST would work, but I knew I would need to read lots of documents and page, man pages and whatnot. And, and essentially every hour or every minute I spent on setting up the system was either a minute less spent on the document, mm -hmm. on the paper, or a minute less spent sleeping. And so what I actually did is on my way home on, on I think it was Friday, I went by the university bookstore and they had like pellets. That those were the days um, when you had those boxes with lots of DVDs inside and the thick mm -hmm. manual. <laughs> so I went there and got the SUSE box 
because it's just wanted to be fast. And so I, you know, kicked off, put it in my DVD drive, started up and started installing and on, on opened the manual and somewhere on page, whatever, 365, it told me how to, how to set up that, that internet configuration I had with my provider with Yast. And, and literally within an hour, whatever it took to copy just the data, I was up and running. And, wow. and that's when I started realizing that the convenience, you know, of having documentation, of having tools to make it really, not because I couldn't, but because I didn't want to become technical at that point, uh, the value of that convenience. And, and ever since then, I've, I've, been, I've been using SUSE pretty much everywhere and I'm spreading, and I'm spreading <laughs> it. Like, I mean, obviously at work. But with my partner, for example, her notebook runs um, runs OpenSUSE. That's amazing. So you actually were using SUSE back then, which is a very different story we hear from a lot of people. A lot of people get one we, when we interview from magazines and stuff and randomly decide to give it a shot. But you were actually trying to solve a real problem. You needed to use this software. It wasn't going to run on Windows. And so you went and got SUSE, and that's really your first experience. But how did you know to grab SUSE, or was it just the first box you saw that you knew could run text? No, I'd be, I'd been looking into it and just comparing what was available. Um, and 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 it was really the I realized the documentation and the comprehensive interface and installation that Yas provided was was really mm-hmm. the reason why I went for it. Your story really took me back because I remember going into software shops. Kids these days won't remember this. And there was software all across the wall. And you'd yes. get a box with a little disc physical yep. thing that came with it. And inside <laughs> would be a manual. It's That's like yeah. the stuff printed on paper. And you would open it and you could read all this. Paper. It's just, what? Yeah, I if know. If you scratched the glorious little disc, then you no longer have the software and your $500 turned into a paperweight. Okay, a so there were downsides to it. Though, <laughs> but still, I remember these days. Time mm-hmm. to upgrade Windows 98. Look, 14 floppy disks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but you felt like a hacker as you're inserting disk, you know, yeah. <laughs> 13 or 14. I love Aww. it. So, Gerald, you've been working for SUSE for over 17 years. That's amazing. <laughs> and congratulations. <laughs> and so, so take us back through your journey. You've talked about it a little bit. And how did you end up working at SUSE? Yeah, that's actually, uh, so I, I used to, <laughs> but I've been contributing to open source free software originally. Um, when I started open source, the name didn't actually exist. Mm. I like to say I've been doing open source before the name was branded. <laughs> um, one of the projects I've been involved with is, is GCC, the new compiler collection. Oh, so nice. It's the tool that builds most of your distro. And I'd been working at university as a postdoc assistant professor. And it was like in the fork of the road of my life, stay in academia probably leave the country, become a professor somewhere, but surely not in Vienna initially, or stay home in in Austria and and move into industry. And so what I did is I reached out to a couple of people I knew from that I've never met in in, in some cases. Um, And one of of them um, is Andreas Jäger. Um, He he used to be the project manager um, for SUSE Linux. And I reached out to him and said, I knew him from the GCC side and reached out to him and say, Hey, I'm thinking to move. Can you just give me some input? How it's, how it, how it is, you know, working for SUSE. I wasn't actually interested working for SUSE. I was just, just wanted to, to get mm. the feel of the different roles and, and options. 
and he gave me input and, and he said, and by the way, we have a job. Don't you want to apply? <laughs> That's, <laughs> next, nice. That's amazing. <laughs> I sit in a train to Nuremberg and have an interview and have dinner. And like two weeks later or, or so, I, I get a job offer. <laughs> and um, two months later, again, train to Nuremberg with the two biggest suitcases I had, you know, everything. <laughs> What's, what's your favorite part about working for a company like SUSE? I mean, I like technology, but really the, the thing that makes a difference for me is, is working with the people. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, SUSE is a very diverse company. I mean, we have people on all continents, except for Antarctica. Um, we sent a guy there to swim with a SUSE, with a SUSE Speedo. <laughs> but I here, love it. You can Google it. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Um, so it's very, it's, it's very diverse. It's, it's really super skillful people. And then also working with, um, you know, with the different communities and, and really in the opportunity to engage with customers and partners. I mean, the thing I really enjoy the most is being in a room, having a whiteboard and, and just trying to understand what they want to do, how we may be able to help. And, you know, my, the best days is when I when I go to a customer and I've prepared a presentation with 50 slides to talk about this, Susan, and what's interesting for them, and we get stuck on slide four. <laughs> and then, you know, the rest is just a conversation. It's on the whiteboard. And so, um, in, you know, having met customers in Latin America, North America, Europe, South Africa, Asia, and partners in all those places too, and, and just seeing how can we how can we solve their problems and at the same time promote open source and, and create better solutions and 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 help help customers drive drive innovation wherever they are um, and that for me is just I mean shouldn't be too vocal because otherwise people will want me to pay to work there <laughs> no I I love that answer. I, I think that all of us in technology have been in telecom for over 20 years. And my favorite moments when I think back are those moments where you get to work with a group of people and solve a really tough problem, but in a great collaborative way with everyone. And I, I've got to ask, so many individuals want to pursue being in Linux or open source as a career. Things have changed, obviously, from 20 years ago, what it may be like to get a career. It, in your mind, since you have so much experience here, what do you look for in somebody or what would you tell someone as advice if they're interested in changing careers and getting into open source in Linux? What would be your big thing you would advice you would give them to start that career change? You know, you can work in open source and it may not feel very different. You could you could work in, in areas where it doesn't it may not feel very different than working for any other software company. But the, the one advice I would give, and that's really the benefit from open, of open source, if it's clear in which direction, which projects, which technologies it goes, just have a look. Because you don't, you know, you don't buy a closed box. You can actually have a look. You can start engaging with the community. You can you can see how they communicate. You can see how the white fields. Um, you can attend a user group, attend FOSDEM, which actually ran, is, is a huge conference usually in, in Belgium online only this, this year. 
but you can go there and, and meet people and, and just, just get more of a feel. That's really the unique opportunity that wouldn't be present in any other industry to change is that if you want to get open source, I think your advice is dead on. You actually can start contributing and making a name for yourself immediately. You don't have to wait to get the hiring papers to start working on something. You can start contributing and get your name out there. And once that's done, the rest is just kind of making those right connections and networking, right? Totally. And, and I mean, one, one thing that's, that's becoming more and more prominent in, in a way is to use your GitHub profile Good as point. your CV, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And it depends on the area you're working on. When you're working on the kernel, GitHub is probably not the right, uh, not the right <laughs> spot. But if, if you're working with, with like cloud native technologies, that's where you meet people. And that's where people actually can see. And, and so I know colleagues, when they're hiring, um, for more senior roles, obviously that's uh, often that's where they look um, yeah. and where they ask people, can you show us something you have been engaged? So yeah, open source, it, it provides a way to, to have a smooth entry. You know, you may have a job, um, you may want to, to move to certain technologies that are of interest. And so you can just start spending a couple of hours every weekend um, and, and become familiar, see whether you like that but also build up more knowledge, um, which makes you more, more likely to land, land, land a job. Love that. What do you think some of the differences that you experience at SUSE is compared to other competitors? What makes SUSE stand out from the other companies that are doing great open source work? It's really, it's, it's really I think, our, our desire, and, and not just desire, but it everything roots in a desire, the desire and, and, and living of being open. Obviously, it's open source, but open source also has different modalities, if you want. You know, you can write software, put it on a server and say, put the GPL or some other licenses and now it's open source. Technically, it's open source, but that's not, you know, that's not really open source. So having, having this desire, for example, to have communities like OpenSUSE, but also sharing sharing tools in between the enterprise side and the community side. You know, the open QA, the build service. Um, those are great tools where um, we invite others, um, and and that's always a good thing because when you when you are open, then you get more feedback earlier, and you get contributions, and people know you, and you know people, and I think that makes a difference because it it keeps them. It keeps the communications keeps the communications going. Um, I think it's amazing mm-hmm. when you hear there. To in my mind, there are just a couple left that are really still pushing that full open source open model out there. And I know you made Michael happy when you mentioned Open QA and the build service because yes. those are two of his favorite things. I talk about I them every time since it comes up. I yeah, always talk I, about this. They're just amazing. absolutely amazing work. Um, but a lot of and I've only, I'm the youngest in Linux on this whole panel. I've only been with Linux, what, four, four years now. And one of the things in my short four years that I noticed is a lot of some of, a lot of companies that are Linux, traditionally open source, seem to be pushing more towards that integration of proprietary um, or looking towards the proprietary more and more and more and more. And there's only a few companies left that I can think of that really and SUSE being one of them, are really pushing still that open source. And that's got to be tough competitively 
I, I would think because of the fact that you have all of these proprietary giant companies, giant names, they have big bucks to put behind things and partnering with them in, in big ways could be much easier than trying to go the path of keeping everything open source. What are your thoughts on, on that comment? I mean, do you see the same thing or do you just feel like this is kind of what we've expected to happen maybe through the Linux as it, as it grows and gains influence? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> for some reason that came out, came to my mind, I could paraphrase JFK, you know, we don't go to the moon because it's easy. There you uh, go. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I just want to clarify, I really want to clarify one thing. We do connect and partner with many, many parties which are not open source. Mm-hmm. What matters to us is that what we do is open source, number one. And number two, in, in no priority order, is meeting customer demands. And so what we just often see is customers want or need to run proprietary software because there may not be an open source alternative. Look, think, uh, think SAP, for example, SAP workloads. Right. And so we, we shouldn't and we aren't shy actually working very, very closely with those or think Azure, right? I mean, the mind-blowing thing for me is, and, and Microsoft really has embraced open source in very in, in, in unforeseen ways. The majority of virtual instances running on Azure is Linux now. It's roughly two-thirds or so is the last number I've heard. And so we don't say, no, no, we don't work with you because you aren't open source. We say, we do the best we can by embracing open source, by embracing the open way of doing business. But this openness implies that we don't rule anyone out. So we work with you if you're a classic storage vendor, if you, you know, a classic virtualization vendor, if you this and that, we, we make sure to, to work with all of those and have a solution that just works in, in the end for, for a customer and us. Obviously, you know, the more open source someone uses, in in a way, the more my green heart blooms. But that's <laughs> not it's it's not it's not a must have. And so I think right. um, I, I totally see what you're seeing, because it's not always easy um, to to be an open source player. But I think in the long run, I do believe open source is going to prevail. And we see, you know, there is even now categories of technology where there is essentially only open source. I mean, if you think about container orchestration. Yeah, right. there's, there's a lot of aspects there. And I, I think that the the argument that uh, proprietary shouldn't be, you know, should become like shunned is a like a break point for me. Like it, it keeps progress down because there's only one way to get them even interested. And it's just not trying to force them to change immediately upon communication. And then once you you know, got them involved and participating. And you could see like when, when Azure started, it wasn't Linux by default. And if we refused to do anything with Azure, then there would, it would still be the same situation. So now that we have, you know, 60, 66% or something like that of Azure is running by Linux, that, that proves that going that route does have some effect. And I think that that's great. And I wanted to talk about uh, the SUSE and OpenSUSE uh, is, is an interesting relationship. And I wanted to talk about that for a second. And as you're on the board of OpenSUSE and a CTO of SUSE, can you tell us and our audience about the relationship between SUSE and OpenSUSE and how has it uh, evolved between the two entities over the years? Yeah, 
I mean, historically, the, the box that I bought in the shop was how Suze actually made originally in, in the 90s and, and early 2000s made, made money. You know, you get for 60, 80 bucks or so, there were two flavors, but you get the manual and the box and it was a co consumer consumer offering. Mm -hmm. um, and then we, when it became more and more clear that Suze wanted to or commercially was moving towards enterprise side, the question is what happens with the, with this consumer offering. And we ended up deciding not to pursue that as a commercial offering, but really make it make it freely available. Um, and then when you make it freely available, a very logical step is say, okay, then just let's make it an open source project. Because the what was in the box was always open source, but the way it was developed, you know, Bacilla access, um, et cetera, wasn't open. And so, in 2004, 2005, we said, that's like about two years after I had joined, we said, well, let's really open up the development of, of back then our Linux. Now OpenSUSE, as you know, is more than that. And, and hence OpenSUSE was created. And, and since then, it's been a dynamic relationship. When you have a relationship over, over many years, I think sometimes you move a little closer, sometimes you move a little, you become more independent. But I believe from what I've seen is OpenSUSE has become a more mature, more self-confident. I mean, we have, and that's sometimes a little, I'm a bit split brain because I, you know, when I say we, sometimes I speak for SUSE. And when I say we, sometimes <laughs> I speak for OpenSUSE. And the, the, thing is, the, the good thing is it's actually not inconsistent, right? Um, but we have become more, self-confident, more confident, I would say, and, and organized. And for example, SUSADMIN, there is a team called the OpenSUSE Heroes who, who actually have adopted the infrastructure and maintain most of the infrastructure um, of OpenSUSE. And some of the heroes are SUSE employees. Love it. Mm, cool. um, so see, that's, that's, it's, it's really this, um, this, this connection. It's not like an you know, when we get new colleagues or as, as business people coming, sometimes I have to explain, you cannot say there's SUSE and there is the community. Right. For two reasons. One, mm -hmm. the, the open source the open source community doesn't exist. Obviously, you could, could talk about the larger open SUSE community, but there is an upstream KDE community and then there's an open SUSE KDE community and there's a GNOME community and an XFC community inside open SUSE and upstream. And so all of all those communities and the people who work for SUSE, who work for other, other open source players or who do non-IT stuff and just contribute in the weekends. I mean, one of the people at OpenSUSE, I happen to know he's a, he's a winery. So by day he, he's in the vineyard and in the evening he maintains up armor or on, on the weekends, which is, is, is a security relevant component. Um, and that's that's what I really enjoy. You know, it, it's not putting people in buckets, but everyone can contribute. And, and we have these connections and these networks. That's cool. That's one and of the things that I find inter, uh, like very interesting, the intertwining of SUSE and OpenSUSE. And it just kind of shows like how much community and open source is important to SUSE, the way it's structured that way. Yeah. So SUSE being known for, like you said, and it was a great clarification on being what you're building 100% open source commitment to it 
But we've seen these companies, as you mentioned, like Microsoft, embrace open source philosophy. What do you think it was? Because it was a shock to everybody, I think. What do you think it was that changed these companies' minds about open source and it suddenly being important? Mm. <laughs> the, the really short answer is because it works. Sure. I mean, I say it works is the projects, the solutions we built actually do the, do the job. Um, and in, increasingly, one observation I've made when I started with open source on, on the server, it was a little bit of a catch up because in terms of scalability and high availability and security, you know, some classic Unix systems were ahead. But in, and, and when I joined SUSE, one of the things actually I worked on was putting SUSE on supercomputers. You know, that the, is so the, cool. The biggest computers possible. And, and back then, some of them or mo more of them didn't actually run on Linux. The majority didn't run Linux because some of the classic Unix systems actually were, um, were better suited historically. Now, if you look at the top 500, um, mm -hmm. so that's the, the biggest of the biggest, mm -hmm. there is, <laughs> let's say, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but let's say 97% or so is, is Linux. I, 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 100 now. Yeah, it, it's, I'm pretty <laughs> sure like the past, uh, like last year, it went to 100. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> that's all, all 500. <laughs> Looks like we win. Yeah, and, and actually, the biggest the the biggest Linux footprint there in in the especially in the bigger ones is is SUSE, yeah, directly and and and, and through partners. So it clearly, clearly, open source is leading there. I mentioned mm -hmm. containers. You know, you look at virtualization with with KVM, but which is is embedded more and more. I mean, if you look at what, what most of the bigger public clouds run, I mean, ask Amazon what, what runs their cloud, ask Google what runs their cloud, um, ask Microsoft what runs on their cloud, right? Right. So yeah. it's, it's really open source has established itself um, and, and us open source players as a leaders in innovation. Yes. Cool new things often happen or increasingly happen in open source first, where open source plays. Mm -hmm. Love it. And Gerald, speaking of which, you know, there's so much growth as we've been talking about on uh, the server side and Linux on the server side. Has SUS put any thought into growing the desktop market and maybe uh, leveraging its many partners? <laughs> <laughs> our our focus our focus is data center to clouds and increasingly edge. Yeah. Um, and, and on the edge, you find actually a lot of desktop. It's kind of fun, funny because one of the things <laughs> I've been a little bit engaged on on the SUSE side is, is I think you had this in, in one of your last sessions where you said this thing has two meanings, is POS, point of service. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and that's something where we actually have a lot of history. Um, yeah. I didn't know that, but often in, there is literally some supermarket chains when you pay <laughs> that goes through <laughs> through the SUSE system there. That's one um, that's been one focus area of ours. Um, we do have a, we do have an enterprise desktop and a workstation. So mm -hmm. there is people using that. The majority, I would say still, even the majority of SUSE systems running desktop are open SUSE systems. Yeah. And that's, that's okay. I mean, I'm happy 
you can't see that unless I put a mirror here, but my notebook that I'm using today is running OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, OpenSUSE is, is like the go-to for desktop stuff. And there's also uh, something I found out fairly recently, a few months ago, that OpenSUSE Leap has a desktop support customer service type of uh, subscription thing you can get where you can uh, like hand off uh, OpenSUSE to Leap to someone and then they could have a subscription to get help for support with the desktop of SUSE and I, on OpenSUSE. And I don't think that there's any anyone else that does that. And that is a really interesting approach. And I, I, I hope that other companies take that as like a, a sign that 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 is something that people want and it's just and it's also like a, an option that people could say like what is a good way to get started with linux well if you have a company like susa being able to give you support directly that's a good that's a good option right there that's a really mm-hmm. good option i i love that i i struggle from the desktop perspective of why linux hasn't been more dominant in this front and really looking forward when you think of companies like Apple, when you think of companies like Windows, frankly, yes, they have big enterprise plays now, but they started their trillion dollar companies because of work they did on desktops and the hardware they were selling for desktops. And so it, it's surprising we've dominated the cloud, we've dominated supercomputers, but the desktop is still like 2% of the total market. There's, an, there's a play here and there's a play that I think could be extremely profitable for a company that would focus on it. And I think one of the big things that I come across still to this day, as a lot of my new user or a lot of my fan base or users that are newer to Linux is hardware compatibility, right? They get the new AMD card, they get the new NVIDIA card, they get the new motherboard, they set it up. They're like, okay, I'm going to listen to this DOS geek guy. I'm putting Linux on, I'm putting Ubuntu on, I'm putting this, oh, it doesn't boot. It doesn't work. That is the big thing that really pushes people back, uh, I think, from it, in, in my mind. What are your thoughts on that? Because SUSE has some awesome partnerships. I know AMD is one of them um, out there. There's some leveraging here. What can we do to see, or what do you think needs to change for Linux on the desktop to really get its big growth like we did in the servers? Yeah, we have been, we've been working closely with actually both AMD and Intel for forever. And my experience actually doesn't really match yours. So all the hardware I've seen and I've acquired, just I've installed. I mean, this notebook that I'm using here, I didn't even 100% know that it was support, supported by Linux and specifically OpenSUSE, but I just took a leap of faith and it worked. Um, took a leap of like faith into Tumbleweed? <laughs> nice. I like how you pulled that in there. <laughs> And partly it's the components. I think the what I would, unless you're a gamer, then maybe a little bit different. But what I, I would advise everyone is to make sure there's open source. If you want to do Linux on a desktop, make sure there's open source drivers for everything. And in particular, graphics for for the chipsets you're using. Again, if you're if you're a gamer, that may not be the best advice. But for a majority of people, um, you know, where video is video is fine and 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 well i think that's the interesting thing that where uh, we see a lot of confusion is that you know video games are now bigger than movies and music combined as far as the money that they bring in 
um, yeah. developers and gamers and older generations of people who traditionally probably CTOs and CEOs are all playing video games now. So this is a big, it's a big market. And um, I think that my, and I think it's a big miss, but Steam and Valve um, and, and of course Wine, they've done amazing jobs, Proton bringing gaming and things to the forefront. Tumbleweed's awesome because it has all the latest drivers and things in there. So if you go AMD, but there are still times for instance, with the 5700X and things where no distro was able to even run. Those machines would not boot at all for weeks after that card came out. And so eventually the drivers caught up. And that's where I think that partnership, the company that has those partnerships with AMD, NVIDIA, Intel can say, Mm -hmm. hey, let's get in the forefront, get your drivers working right up front before the release like they do with Windows and or or other operating systems so that that experience for new users coming because there's probably thousands of people well we know because they're out of stock everywhere tens of thousands of people with these new cards trying to boot into their operating system they can't so they fall back into a windows environment so i'm just hoping that those awesome partnerships and things can continue in that driver market because i just think it's a huge untapped potential but i love that you all offer the customer service support option too for the desktop portion because I think that's the beginning of really showing the desktop being taken serious, you know, from a, in a profitability standpoint as well. Mm-hmm. By the way, there there is a little, I mean hack is <laughs> hack, hack, let's call it a hack. There's a little hack I've been using when I had brand new hardware um, for you know user personas that are a little bit more conservative is that I usually start with tumbleweed to make sure the whole driver framework is the latest that's actually available upstream. And then when there is the next, there is a next version of OpenSUSE Leap, which usually releases like once a year, migrate them to, to that version um, to have nice. them on a more stable base. And when I say stable, it doesn't necessarily, you know, I trust Tumbleweed, but when you, when you have Tumbleweed, you consume just a lot, lots and lots of updates. Sure. So just, uh, yeah. The downloads you have um, can be a little bit daunting for someone who is not so familiar, um, and that has served that has served me well. Yeah, Gerald, I wanted to say that OpenSUSE has had the most beautiful implementation of the KDE desktop of any distro. I mean, I had stopped using KDE and still until I started using it on OpenSUSE. <laughs> so, and I, I do run it for uh, do use it for gaming too as well. Awesome. But it's just really, really beautiful. Um, it's it's stable. It's clean. It looks pretty. And that was in a time when KDE had a little bit of had some issues with stability. So, <laughs> well, um, I think you need to thank a couple of colleagues and, and and other community members who I know have been, you know, year over year over year constantly have been doing great work. Yeah. And uh, Michael, did you slip that KDE in and it I, question in on there? I didn't. I didn't do it. So you know, I, I didn't Michael's the biggest KDE fanboy on the yes. planet. So I feel like he paid Jill to ask that. I'm, to say I that. understand. I understand you expected that to be from me, but in this yes. one particular instance, it wasn't. It was okay. Okay. Usually, I just Jill. usually it totally would be. 
but what, um, you to, what you have to understand is Michael is a fanboy of KDE, but it's because he likes exploring technology as we all do. And, and I guess what I would ask you is this, is there a particular upcoming technology that you look at and say, you know, blockchain or quantum computing mm-hmm. or whatever the thing is, that's the thing that I really think is going to put OpenSUSE on the map or is going to be the thing that we are just going to thrive because our community and our systems and what we've been focusing on is all coming together when this thing hits the market or is coming. What is that for you? If I now say no, I'm getting kicked out of this conference, right? (laughs) (laughs) So of those that you named, I would definitely pick AI. Um, And here's why. Because I think AI opens up completely new use cases for users and developers, but it also opens up actually really cool use cases for us. Think of having, um, you know, storage clusters or any sort of cluster and you don't want to be on call. You want the cluster to heal itself or you want the the system to tune itself. And so we can use, and, and there's colleagues who are doing that, we can use AI technologies and embed that in our you know, in, in our upstream projects and embed them into, into our own solutions and products so that systems become more clever. You know, in clever systems ever since I get latest Terminator movies, I guess, is, is always something people may have second thoughts about. But really, I don't, I don't think we're, we're trying to build new intelligence. in, in Not Skynet. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. You have... <laughs> You have devices, and it could be your cell phone, that could be your server, your desktop, um, and you want those devices to act in an intelligent manner, which means serve you well, because that's what that's what technology is here, and and I foresee that those intelligent systems, again, not not in a Skynet sense, but will more and more communicate with each other, not creating a new set of conscience, but really sharing necessary data and be proactive about handling, you know, out of storage situations or there is a need for more capacity, etc. So for me, AI is 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 really mm-hmm. is really one part of it is I've I've studied AI back in the days. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, maybe awesome. a little um, connection there, and and the other one I think is not like a new thing in in that, but I think containers. I think we have we haven't like reached halfway of where and how containers are going to to conquer conquer IT and 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 way beyond IT because and that's something cool. Um, there is a company that that Sue's acquired um, called Rancher. Mm-hmm. And, and I just learned more about what they have been doing. Um, and, and one thing is they have a own, or we now have a, have a Kubernetes distribution called K3S, which you can actually, is small enough, it's fully certified, but it's small enough that you can put it on edge devices or you can put it on your notebook too. Love that. And so I think the technologies, containers, you know, everyone think when you say container, people think of cloud. Mm-hmm. And, and when I'm thinking containers, I'm thinking pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Richard Brown, mm-hmm. um, who is a who is, um, colleague at SUSE and, and has been my predecessor on the OpenSUSE board, he's actually uh, been talking about 
creating a containerized desktop. Mm. So essentially you have a desktop experience is a little bit to your cell phone. You have a very stable static, maybe a little bit too strong of a word, but you have a very, very stable, um, not super much configurable desktop environment. And then you slot in applications that right. come like your app on the cell phone. And talking about, you know, the earlier conversation we had on the desktop, that may actually be be one of the quantum the turning points. Yeah. So turning points um, for for desktop adoption. So like uh, containers, you do building a read-only structure with the container approach. What you're saying? Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. You have, um, it's called micro S, mm-hmm. but you have you you have an immu- immutable um, operating system uh, trans- that does transaction updates, and so you whoop. And on top, you have the applications, which just keep um, yeah. keep running. Micro OS is super interesting. I also recently re- uh, realized that Micro OS is supported on a ton of platforms. Uh, and just I didn't even know that there was that many platforms that you could put SUSE on. And then Micro OS is on, like I think, like 15 or something. It's like, just wow. Uh, so the, I, I don't want to play with it on you know, and tr- try out the the style of that immutable system is a, is a really cool concept. Uh, but I also wanted to go back a, a little bit to talk about something that you, we were talking about, the intertwining of uh, SUSE and OpenSUSE. And you mentioned how you went from, uh, you go to open, from OpenSUSE Tumbleweed to Leap for your systems to kind of have like a, you know, kind of a, a jumping point with Tumbleweed. And then when the new releases releases come out for Leap, you switch to that. And I'm curious because the SUSE posted a blog post recently about the plans that, to fully integrate OpenSUSE in the development pipeline. So like the OpenSUSE Tumbleweed then goes to Slee and then goes to Leap and all being in that single pipeline. Uh, I think this is very fascinating. But what's the reason for this restructuring and what benefits do you expect to come from it? It's a very logical step. What we found is we have been having, you know, OpenSUSE. Originally, it was it was um, a distribution more on the stable stable side, which is more comparable with what Leap is now. Um, and then came Tumbleweed as a rolling distribution. And a couple of years ago, we realized, wouldn't it make sense instead of OpenSUSE doing their own stable distribution in a way? wouldn't it make sense for the base of that, the base layer, if you want, to come from SUSE Linux Enterprise? And so that's when mm. when SUSE actually said, offered, in the context also of the build service, say, okay, we provide you all the sources and updates for SUSE Linux Enterprise so you can rebuild um, them and then have that as the base for Leap and then add all the desktop environments. Um, because SUSE Linux Enterprise generally has a best-of-breed approach, and we, we usually pick one. And so there's one desktop environment in SUSE Linux Enterprise, but on OpenSUSE, we want to offer more, or the different communities want more. And so it's like a two-layered cake. Leap is a two-layered cake, the very stable base coming from SUSE Linux Enterprise being rebuilt, and then and on top, the, the fruits, if you want. If you think food sounds cake. delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, then- Gerald, um, I actually I've attended many of the SUSE Expert Days events here in Los mm-hmm. Angeles over the years. They've been a, really a lot of fun. And I remember being so impressed the first time I'd actually seen a demo of live kernel patching 
on 120 remote computers running SUSE. No one had done that before in the Linux distro world. So that was really spectacular. So can you share with us some upcoming news or innovations coming soon with SUSE that you're most excited about? I think in the container era. So I'm... I don't have a new live patching for you. That was a really cool one. Is actually, <laughs> I was in product management back then and we had customer request. Customers nice. tell us, I want to Linux to keep running, but I want my security, um, CV, my CVE patched. So I want to get a security update. And so we went to the SUSE Labs um, people, which is our research group, who's responsible for the kernel and said, look, mm. we want to update the kernel while it's running and it should keep running. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally how it started. <laughs> I, I the be, problem. <laughs> I mean, what we are, what we have in the cooking right now, where's a lot of focus is on the, is on the container side, and really, yeah, uh, there's two things coming together: containers, and we have been engaging in edge use cases, edge technologies, mm-hmm. um, for a while, and and I see a confluence there of really bring together the use case uh, the use case on the edge and the stability and resilience required on the edge because you know many many of those cases when you update the system and anything goes wrong there is no one there right worst case the thing is in is in is in space somewhere or at least at an outpost that someone needs to hop on a car to go there so to bring the resilience that's required on the edge and the Agility um, that you get more in the container world, world really together, um, and that's that's what I see us. In addition to everything else, obviously, spend a lot of spend a lot of effort on and mm, nice. S and micro S things like build service, etc. I think those those are all playing a role there. Nice. Uh, we we have uh, I know we're we're close to the end of the the interview, but I wanted to ask something I think is very important. It's a very important question that was given to us in the the patron uh, patron chat by NecoJet. He wants to know where can we get Geeko plushies. <laughs> I'll find out. Okay, cool. Here's your Geeko. More envious. More envious. I'll show you something. Nice. Aww. Look at that. <laughs> Jill's so holding up several. This Gerald the, has some. This, the Novell one. <laughs> this is so called Cowmelian. Um, oh, how cute. I want that one. <laughs> rancher, uh, oh, the rancher uh, one. Nice. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think the answer. So I'll I'll try to get you an answer um for Plush Geekos. <laughs> unfortunately, the answer on this is from all I know is suzy.com slash jobs. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cool. That's understandable, but uh, hopefully there is still a possibility to get the, the regular Geeko plushies. I, I totally don't know. I think we're missing out on a huge market for Sousa here, just selling yeah. plushies. I mean, we could, we could fund millions and millions of dollars worth of projects. I, t- I totally plushies. need a plushie sitting right here in the yeah. bookcase just at all times. I'm I telling think, you. For sure. Yeah, Gerald, I literally have um, about 15 uh, Geeko plushies, uh, different sizes, um, <laughs> because of the Southern California Linux Expo. And okay. I'm I'm um, good friends with the Open OpenSUSE uh, community there. So <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I awesome. get lots of sure. Geekos and shirts and, and because of going to the SUSE expert days. 
Yeah, I, I can see you also have a fair number of penguins. In the yes. <laughs> yeah. Just, she does not yeah. have an unhealthy obsession, or maybe a slight one. <laughs> but but sources told me sources told me that the number of plush animals you you own is dwarfed by the number of computers that you own. Yes. <laughs> that is also yeah. true. <laughs> We, we, Jill has an amazing set. So I, we do yeah. another podcast, uh, Michael and me, called Hardware Addicts. And we talk about all the latest hardware and old hardware and all of this stuff. And I was like, Jill came on later and I was like, man, do I feel like a poser compared to <laughs> Jill, who has a museum worthy collection of computers? It's absolutely amazing. Um, well, that's it. We've run you through the gauntlet of questions. You have answered them all masterfully. Thank you awesome. so much for coming on the show today. Not only to share your Linux journey with us, but the amazing story and work that SUSE and the open source community are doing. But I also want to take a moment to thank you for your dedication in the open source world for all of these mm -hmm. years and continuing to drive it forward because we wouldn't be doing podcasts like this and have audience around the world if it wasn't for people like you who are helping to build this stuff and put the foundation in place and drive Linux forward. So we really hope you enjoyed your time. We'll come back in the future because I know people will love this and want to hear more from you. Yeah. Here's the promise. <laughs> Invite me and I'll be back. Nice. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> this episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. So Bitwarden is a password manager, and a password manager is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important because the best security practice for passwords is to have a different password for every account on every website that you sign up to. And sure, that makes sense as a policy, but without a password manager, it's a very painful thing to do. Bitwarden solves all of this by providing tools to store your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords for you on login forms so you don't have to do any of that stuff. You can access your data across many types of devices like your web browser, uh, mobile apps, desktop applications, or even on the command line. And also Bitwarden secures your, pri your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to your data. But they also actually introduced a new thing called emergency access, which allows you to give access to other people in emergency it. situations or under special circumstances and stuff like that. It's just fantastic. And they also introduced something else that's even more fantastic, and that is because you can use this all the time with biometric authentication because you can use uh, fingerprint scanning, you can do face recognition, and they're also working on other ways to do biometric. You can do combinations, too. Yes, it's Right, it's elements. fantastic. So Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these great features, it's also 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community, but they don't just stop there. They also bring in third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is as safe as possible. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started, and you can get it started with a free account, but I think you want to check out their premium account because it starts at less than 
a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gives you one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, and others in Vault Health support, Vault Health reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, and also you get priority customer support through this. And again, less than $1 per month. It's actually just $10 per year. That's it. And make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash dealin. And this lets you get a peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. Sign up for their less than a dollar per month premium account to let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the Destination Linux podcast. So again, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. So there is a lot of big news at Canonical this week. Uh, let's start with Ubuntu's recently uh, recent plans to change its desktop installer starting in Ubuntu 21.10. The installer, so many praise as the easiest, you know, Really, Ubiquity, Ubiquity yeah. is so easy to use. So they're going to be retiring Ubiquity. And according to Martin Wimpress, he quotes, while still functional, Ubiquity hasn't seen significant feature development for some years. And due to its legacy is becoming cumbersome to maintain. So the, play, the replacement is, is one that people out there might know. For, Ubiqu for Ubiquity is going to be built using Google's Flutter toolkit. For a little background, Ubuntu's server installer called Subwickity. Subwickity. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that rolls off the tongue. I knew I was going to have a hard time. Subwickity uses Curtain, which the new installer will also rely on for a more unified approach to installation, according to Martin Wimpress. <laughs> so, what does everybody think about this? So, I think uh, number one, I the work you can't, you can't just pass up the work that Ubiquity had in it. I mean, I think it was one yeah. of the best installers, best experiences for new users, very simple, easy to use. One of the key standouts for Ubuntu period was its installation process. So that would be, that's the first thing that it was an interesting move, but I get what Martin was saying that, hey, this thing's old, it's cumbersome to maintain, mm -hmm. we want something new. But going with a Google toolkit Oh man. Yeah. Uh, will it be retired? <laughs> will they kill it off like they do so many other projects in I the mean, future? Te technically now, speaking, Flutter is open source. So even if they do kill it off, it could just be. Forced. But then you have to maintain have the whole to, thing. Yeah. That's true. You know, mm -hmm. it's That's still a problem. Uh, yeah. But regardless, they've made that partnership. They've made that move. I looked at some of the screenshots of it. What does everybody think? I've seen the community. It's very mixed. Some of the community like it. Some of the community say it looks just like an Android installer. An Android installer. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> there's there's a lot of different takes on this. Anybody particularly passionate one way or the other? I just hope it doesn't become buggy because Ubuntu's installation process is, well, quite good right now. Yeah. Well, there's there's it's interesting because there are certain things that Ubiquity can do that it does it very well, but there's also other things that it can't do because of the way it's structured. So I, I understand the the goal of wanting to kind of consolidate their server installer and their desktop installer for the, the amount, of, amount of code you have to do. But also there's a potential because of like, you know, there's the minimal install that is available in some of these uh, the the flavors that use the ubiquity. And the, the, the way it works is kind of funky in that the fact that it installs everything and then removes things. 
rather than just not installing those. Hmm. And it's because the way that Ubiquity works, the only way that they could make that happen would be to do it that way. So it's kind of interesting because maybe they would be able to approach it in a different way with this new installer. But at the same time, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't really have any preference about Flutter or not because Flutter is kind of a cool toolkit if you look at it just from technology structure, and then you look at the Google part and you're like, ah, uh. and you look mm-hmm. at what we do, what we're doing with GTK, and you look at what we're doing with Qt, and then you go, why? I I have to agree with what Noah was saying of why are you not looking at other standards and things? You know, we just talked to other companies that talk about opening their standards up so other people can use them and participate. And not that I guess you couldn't here, but they're just kind of going their own path, which I have to give them credit for the innovation approach, right? And this could be great for them. It also could create a ton of bugs and issues. And obviously the team is going to have to do a ton of work, the RO team with trying to keep the look of everything consistent because now all that has to change as well. This mm-hmm. is a huge undertaking. So it's clearly huge. they see some future, some point in kind of pushing this forward. But I don't know. There's This one's going to be interesting to watch and see. And I, I wish them luck on it. And we'll see what happens with the installation process. But I sure hope it stays as simple and consistent as Ubuntu's installation yeah. process has been in the past, which is a standout feature like in the top three of mm-hmm. why you would use Ubuntu is the installation process. So um, they obviously know what they're doing in this world. And uh, if anybody could pull it off, certainly they could. So we'll yeah, see. I totally agree. I, I agree with the whole why they use it. They, they said that they looked at other toolkits, but they didn't say why they didn't choose those toolkits. And that's more interesting to me than the, the, what, the response they gave. If they just said that they looked at it and they evaluated it and other That's because they know the Linux community to know no matter what they say, it would just be argument. Anyway. That's true, but I just, I'm, it's the technical side of me wants to know like why they yeah. chose Flutter yeah, over maybe. the other options. And even if they wanted to make their own installer, I, I get why they would want to make their own installer because maybe there's limits you can't do in Calamari's or something like that. But to, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm curious why they chose Flutter because they didn't really specify that either. And because I do think Qt is a fantastic toolkit, and I and unfortunately they did stop doing that LTS open source approach, but that might be a reason why I don't know. But I, I just I would be I would love to know Canonical if you want to share the information like the technical aspects of what well, makes Flutter valuable. Hmm. Next yeah. week we're going to be covering the fact that they're moving to Facebook's App Store in a great no teasing. <laughs> Michael has the reason as to why that's a good thing. Right. I didn't. What? I'm not. I wasn't saying anything. Okay. Let's move on. Because it has WhatsApp Uh, support. There there is some news that's actually um, quite sad, but also positive um, for for Martin. You know, Martin has been on the show. Martin Wimpris before. He's a huge um, contributor to open source and Canonical and Ubuntu. And he announced recently that he's leaving Canonical and moving on to new adventures. Uh, however, mm-hmm. in case anybody's having a heart attack right now, he will still continue supporting Ubuntu Mate. So if you're a huge fan of Mate, rest assured, he's still <laughs> going to be involved. And knowing Martin, he, he's involved in so many different things. You'll still see his presence uh, out there and involved with Canonical and some of the projects that they're they're doing there. So I just want to take a moment and thank Martin for the many times back when the show was just kicking off and we were just starting off and hoping to get great interviews and things for jumping on this show, doing many interviews. I always loved his personality and excitement 
that he brought to open source and the projects and passion that he worked on, I think was second to none. Um, also, I think it's sometimes a good thing, not necessarily for the community uh, at times, it may not look like it, but it's a good thing to kind of do something different probably. And, and maybe, and you never know, come back to the project later on as things change, because um, you know how many people we've interviewed it, we've talked about it in news stories can get burnout in a community because of you know, you've got a lot of good stuff, but you also got a lot of people that can be pretty aggressive and negative <laughs> and angry at times and things. So sometimes it's good to do something different for a while and come back. So I definitely wish Martin all the best in the world and thank him for all of his work that he's done and will continue to do in open source. Oh, we love you, Wimpy. And we know you're still going to be part of Team Green and right. <laughs> Ubuntu Mate and, and maybe Suse too. <laughs> Team Green, <laughs> no, uh, but um, that's so awesome. And yep. yeah, we wish you well on your new Linux journey. But he also said he's still going to be maintaining snaps too. So yeah. that was good to hear. Nice. He can't <laughs> leave. He can only partially go. <laughs> he can only step a foot out. <laughs> All right. So on some more positive news in the gaming section, we have Velheim. This game looks really, really cool. So how about this week? A game that describes itself like this. A brutal exploration. Brutal being the keyword there. And I think I might have Noah's attention. Maybe not. Survival game for one to ten players set in procedurally generated purgatory. Okay. Inspired by Viking culture. You got me going there. Battle, build, and conquer your way to a saga worthy of Odin's patronage. That sounds amazing and fun the it best part though, i know what you're thinking it's not going to run on linux you're wrong it runs <laughs> on linux it's native to linux you day can go one. install this yes <laughs> right day, day one. one this is an open world online co-op game you can enjoy with 10 of your friends gorgeous graphics absolutely amazing soundtrack 963 very positive reviews already on this game did i mention yeah. it runs natively on linux it runs natively on linux in case you were wondering uh, I talk about cyberpunk and sci-fi a lot. That's my jam, but I'll buy any game based in medieval anytime <laughs> as well. Those are kind of the two things that I just absolutely dig. So this game is absolutely going to be in my playlist and I cannot wait to destroy Michael in the Viking world. Aww. It's a co-op game. That means you work together. Oh, <laughs> darn yes. it. So we work together to destroy Michael. Even yes, we'll wait. work together to destroy Michael. Uh, that's awesome. not <laughs> this, this this took a turn for the worst. <laughs> and I, earlier before we started the show, I was saying this is a lot like uh, Ark Survival involved in but instead of dinosaurs Vikings. So and I love those kind of games. And I actually just like to explore in these kind of games and you know, sometimes do the battles, but I have just as much fun doing the exploration. <laughs> of course you would be over there doing the nice yeah. things, yeah. crafting. <laughs> Jill's not gonna get involved in the blood and gore aspect of it. <laughs> but we will. We will. We will. In the software spotlight this week, we have Markets. The Markets app delivers financial data to your fingertips. You can stay on top of the market in terms of stocks and never miss an investment opportunity. You can create a personal portfolio. You can track stocks, currencies, even cryptocurrencies and like commodities and indexes. And if any of that stuff makes sense to you, then you probably want to check out this application. Uh, it's compatible with not only distributions for Linux, but also some, it's available on some Linux smartphones. Smartphones. Uh, 
and it has so it has like a responsive design so it make it fits on a small screen as well which is great and also it has uh, all kinds of stuff for support like uh, Yahoo Finance and it has uh, ability to adjust the refresh rate so you can see the stocks even faster and of course the beloved dark mode is included. So that's, thank you very much for that. So if you're interested in checking out or keeping up with your financial data for like stock tips and not tips necessarily, but tracking stocks and stuff like that, uh, then check out markets and we'll have a link in the show notes. I got to tell a funny story about this though. So I was doing some investments this week and I'm looking for an app and I thought this is going to be so simple. I went online, said, what's the best investment app on Linux? It must be a ton. And there's this whole list. And each one I would go through was deprecated, no longer supported, gone, dead. There's all kinds Mm. of them out there. And I literally was getting to the point where I'm not going to be able to do a software spotlight on something financial related because there's no app there. Then I opened Fedora store and typed in a stock app and boom, markets is there. So this is the (laughs) one. Wait, wait, did you type in the store? Did you type in stocks (laughs) or stonks? That's the stonks, we, yeah. Of I was gonna okay. say stonks. Right. right. Stonks. Yeah. Diamond Perfect. hands to the moon. All of that <laughs> rocket ship. All, all of that good stuff. But right. I was surprised. I, I just <laughs> next time I learned to just start in the software store, we'd be good. That's a good option. Yeah. <laughs> you guys hear all of this talk in the Linux community about pods and containers and all of this stuff that is going to be the future of Linux. But you're saying to yourself, self, I have no idea what they're talking about or how to get started. So why not make this the week that you get started? So this week we're featuring Podman, which was originally written by Rel. Podman lets you run, build, and shared them deploy applications using open containers. Now, the best part, it's insanely easy to get started. Now, before we go any further, I have to tell you, every once in a great blue moon, you'll come across something that was originally written for Docker, and it was supposed to be OCI compliant. So theoretically, it should run fine in Podman, and it doesn't. And then you say to yourself, or you write into the Destination Linux show, or ask Noah, or wherever it is that you uh, write in, and say, hey, I have this I had this problem. I tried to do this thing, and then it didn't work, and and it, it was supposed to be OCI compliant. What happened? Well, That is not Podman's fault. That's oftentimes the containers themselves are not written to be OCI compliant because if they were, they would run in Podman. So if you have any, if you have problems with the first one that you try, the first thing you try and get off the ground, don't be afraid to try something else. So to get started, it's quite simple. In Fedora, which is what you probably are using, uh, sudo dnf tacky install Podman on OpenSUSE, zipper install Podman on Debian, sudo apt-get tacky install Podman. Then to start your first pod, it's as easy as simply writing podman pod create tac tac name. Insert the name there. Let's say you want to run Debian while you're using Fedora inside of a pod. That would be podman run tac it tac tac rm tac tac pod, the name of your pod, and then Debian slash bin slash bash. In order to stop the server, simply type exit. Then type podman pod stop and the name of your pod. Congratulations. In just, the, in just a couple of moments, you've set up and run your first container image. If you want to learn more about Podman, then keep coming back and we'll give you more information as we roll on Destination Linux. So a huge thank you to each and every one of you by supporting us, by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We love your faces. And if you want more DL, (laughs) become a patron like all of these beautiful people here with us today behind the scenes, getting all of the super secret uncut stuff, or at least a lot of the jokes and fun there. You too can become a patron by joining us on Patreon or Sponsors. You have two choices there. You get perks like unedited versions of the show, VIP access to events and live recordings of Destination Linux every single Sunday. And you get the patron-only hangout show, which is pretty awesome as well. 
In addition to every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live on DLNlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And also go right now to DLNstore.com and pick up some swag. There's all kinds of stuff there. There's t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and even more. As you can see, Ryan is wearing his new the new DOS Geek shirt that's on the store. So you can check it out and go to DLNstore.com <laughs> and check that out, as well as all the other great stuff, including the DLN coffee mug that we mentioned earlier. So DLNstore.com. And we have so many wonderful shows here on the Destination Linux Network. The Pseudo Show, the Ask Noah Show with Noah Chalaya right here. And we have This Week in Linux with Michael Tunnell. We have DOS, the DOS Geek Channel with DOS Geek. Yeah. DOS Geek. <laughs> and we have the show DLN Extend, Hardware Addicts, and Get Your Game On with our latest show, GameSphere. Go to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all these shows to keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. We got it. Sousa plushies. Sousa plushies. Nice.